Hello and welcome to the Education Community Podcast, an exciting new platform brought to you by Bernardo's, the National Children's Charity. Our aim is to produce episodes that will be supporting mental health and well-being across a variety of education services within the United Kingdom. We plan to interview a range of professionals in order for us to have a wider understanding of staff well-being, trauma, loss and bereavement as we continue to try and navigate through the difficult times faced across the country. Hello, um, today we're joined by Aisha Thomas, Director of Representation Matters and former Assistant Principal until July 2021 in a Bristol Secondary School. Aisha, um, Bernardo's colleague suggests I got in touch with you after a conversation she and I had about an article that I wanted to write on racial trauma. So we've gone on then to collaborate on this, uh, which has been great. And so why why did you think it was important to highlight racial trauma as a particular form of trauma for education staff and staff in schools? I think any kind of conversations about race, any kind of conversations about racism are always very emotive. It can be quite difficult for us to understand as an individual. And so often we can kind of cope with over examples. Someone's used the N word, the P word. I now need to give that child a sanction. I need to reprimand that member of staff. And it becomes very punitive. But I think there's something about understanding the impact of these behaviors, be it over or covert, and people really beginning to understand how trauma can manifest itself even in the lens of race. I think um, there's been lots of work around trauma-informed approaches, lots of work about understanding that children may have had advanced, you know, advanced experiences that have had a really difficult experience for them and really affected the way in which they, they navigate their behaviours, their thinking, their mental health and their well-being. But what we haven't done, and particularly around race, is really looked at the way in which it impacts on their behaviour, how they, it impacts on their brains, how it impacts on how they have relationships with each other. And, um, you know, we've had lots of conversations offline, but I think one of the things we talked about is that this idea that people need to understand their core beliefs, because your core beliefs will impact on your your emotions, and then your emotions will impact on your behaviour. So if we just use a really short example of that, and we just think of COVID, for example, if you have a person who now believes the world is unsafe as a result of the pandemic, that person now believes that they can't leave their house, they can't return to work they're unable to engage in normal social activities because the world is now unsafe. The emotion then is that they are fearful and they've now got anxiety, but the behavior might now be that they don't leave the house. They're not willing to engage. Now imagine that from a racial context, from both perspectives. Imagine having a black child who has the core belief that they should be in fear of white people because of all the things they've been taught about enslavement, about police brutality, about exclusion. And so they now have a fear. They're they're anxious. And therefore the behavior is that they respond in in a way that someone might deem aggressive or they might seem um, fearful of because they're angry and they're frustrated and they might say and do things as a defense mechanism. Trauma is not being addressed because what then happens is they just look at the behavior. We now have a black boy kicking off in the classroom. Nobody's unpicking what was the emotional connection. Okay, let's go back even further. What was the belief that that black child had as to why he had that thought process? Let's take that journey. 
But equally, the other perspective, you could have a white person, for example, who may have had a very negative experience, for example, um, in childhood with a, with a black person. They then have a core, core belief that all black people are scary. So when they walk in the, you know, down the road, they pull their handbag towards them or they cross the road or they won't share a seat with them um, in terms of transport. But what does that do when those people are engaging in their everyday jobs? Doctor, accountant, lawyers, teachers. Are you honestly telling me that that experience doesn't then slip into your day job? The things you then think about those children and the way in you may interact with their parents? Of course it does. So as a result of that, we need to understand the importance of racial trauma and how it manifests within our behaviors. Now, there is a concept which is, is it's not new, but I would say it's new to the mainstream conversation around epigenetics, understanding that how your behaviors and your environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. And so understanding that trauma can be transferred. And um, there are research showing that it can be transferred up to like 13 generations. So for someone like me, who is black, well, where would, I, where would my people have been, my ancestors 13 generations ago? They're more than likely would have been slaves. In which case, if their trauma can be passed on from generation to generation, how much of that racial trauma am I just carrying in my genes? That's affecting my everyday thinking. Yeah, I, I've done a little bit of, well, I've done some reading about it, but I know you, you talked to me about a particular book that was, was helpful in understanding more about racial trauma. Can you just tell us a little bit about that book? Yes, of course. The actual book was, and I want to make sure I get the title correct. The book is called My Grandmother's Hands, and the entire book is really about racialized trauma, mending our hearts and our bodies. And it's Resma Menachem, the book is written by. And there are lots of podcasts and kind of YouTubes you can listen to around different interpretations of the book. But what the book does is it really allows you to immerse yourselves into your physical body. How is your body making you feel and how is it impacting on the way in which you are engaging around these conversations around race and racism, but how the trauma is actually physically affecting your body and the way you act and interact with one another. And mm -hmm. it's about understanding not only what does it do to the body of a black person or a person of color, but what is it also doing to the body of a white person for someone who is considered to be of the dominant race. And interestingly, somebody tweeted not too long ago about the fact that even when we think about slavery, it is taught from the, the gaze of the black experience, but we don't really talk about slavery from the white perspective. And actually it's white people's history too. Yeah. And need to grapple with that and we need to understand the traumatic experiences that it's creating for, for both parties but really understand you know African people um, particularly West African people are the only people who've ever had their actual existence enshrined in law as being dehumanized they've become commodities we can make you property to enslave you even hearing that as an adult who has mm. not experienced it what trauma is that causing me what is that experience doing to me and in my training sessions one of the things I do I often show people reverse imagery of what racism and enslavement would look like from the white gaze and what's quite interesting is people find it very difficult you often see people turning away they don't want to look at the pictures I put on the screen seeing white people in chains with a black man with a gun to their head they don't want to see that it makes them feel extremely uncomfortable Aisha you can take that off the screen now black children every day 
Yeah, I saw a tweet about that yesterday, actually. Somebody saying exactly what you said about this is white people's history. You know, mm. we need to be saying, need to be saying that. And and I also saw, I think it's something from the Welsh, it might be in the Welsh anti-racist organization saying that they they were recommending that racial trauma was seen as one of the aces and they wanted yes. that kind of in, not enshrined, but yes, I guess it is in a way seen as, you know, oh, racial. I agree. Mm. I agree completely because even when I talk about um, racism and anti-racist practice, and I've been challenged, I've had, um, you know, people in different schools and different organisations say, you know, schools are not a place for partisan views. It would be remiss of us to not acknowledge that what's been in the papers just this week about the fact that, you know, we, we shouldn't talk about white privilege or structural advantage, mm. you know. You know, it's it's a contested fact. These are the things that we shouldn't be talking about, or if we do, we must give both points of view. But the reality is how I see it is when I talk about anti-racist practice, when I talk about racism, I talk about it from the lens of safeguarding. Yes. People have a safeguarding responsibility to make sure that all children are safe in school, that when they walk into that building, we as educators can do everything we can in our power to ensure that not only can they access their education safely, that they can attain well, but they're physically safe and that no factor of the, about them is going to put them at risk. Now, if I know that racism is, is something that is real, it's lived experiences, children are experiencing this every day, if it is not a overt kind of acknowledgement of this, and I'm not including it as something that staff need to be trained on and aware of from a safeguarding lens, how can we be sure it will be picked up and not just treated as a behavior issue? I need you to understand that actually children should be safeguarded against racism. Children should be safeguarded against the emotional, physical and mental impact and trauma that they experience. And often what we end up doing is we, we treat it as a behavior concern and we often leave it to our secondary colleagues. But the reality is, is that children from birth, particularly black children, will be having experiences of racism from day one. You know, black women are four times more likely to die in pregnancy related and birthing issues by the very definition of their skin color. Now, how can that be? How is it that black women are dying four times more? Why is it that Asian women are dying three times more than their white female counterparts? How is that? Same mm -hmm. NHS hospitals, same experience, same birthing. The reality is, is the racism that's in the structure and the systems is impacting on their experience. And that's the reality. And so when we think about it in terms of children, black children, children of color will experience racism and the difference at a point much sooner than their white counterparts will, other white children. And it's quite interesting because, so I'll give you an example. So my mum's in a, an interracial relationship. She dates a, a white man and they recently went to an event. Now, what was quite interesting, my mum was the only black person there. And there was a little girl about four years old, just looking at my mum very curiously, kind of like, hmm, you look different. And mm. said to my mum, do you have on makeup? Now, my mum in that moment was thinking, well, maybe, you know, she's, she's spotting my makeup. She can see, you know, see that I've got, you know, eyeshadow on or whatever it may well be. But then she said to my mum, but why brown? And in that moment, my mum realised that actually she thought her skin colour was makeup. Now, the reality is her dad was a bit uncomfortable, wanted to shut down the conversation. And my mom was like, well, no, conversations about the beauty of race and skin tone and hair is a beautiful thing. It gets messy when we involve it in terms of racism. That's what the issue is. And so we don't have that conversation. That four-year-old child will grow up thinking, what to do? Do 
we need to have those conversations as early as possible because what we want to do is remove those barriers. We can't pretend that we don't see colour. Of course we do. We see colour, we see texture, we see shades, we see different hair, we see body shape, we see all of those things. But rather than looking at it from the perspective that these are the beautiful richness that we have within each other that we can celebrate and enjoy, we see it as a negative and we, we use it as a tool to put people in a system and work out how worthy we think, think that person is because of the shade of their skin, because of what they look like. And that's where the problem occurs. And so these conversations about race need to happen with children as young as possible. Early years cannot be removed from the conversation. It should be happening in primary school. And the reality is once we have these conversations, we can pick up on these adverse childhood experiences at a much earlier point. Absolutely. Because I was looking at the Birth to Five Matters documentation, which I know you, you'd um, refer to as well. And, you know, it's really strong, I think, really helpful for practitioners who are working within nurseries, preschools, childminders, maintained nursery and reception classes about exactly that, the importance of having those conversations and of ensuring that children's questions they're curious they want they want to understand and they notice difference really early which I think sometimes we also forget yeah no I couldn't agree more with that there's there's a really awesome book and I'm just going to grab it one second so I really want you to to think about this book for a moment but um, I'm not sure if you've seen it yet but the book is by Laura Henry Elaine she is also the um writer of um Jojo and Grand Grand which is yeah yeah uh, animation but the book's called My Skin, Your Skin, and it's a book that's really targeted for families and young children to just talk about race, racism and empowerment. And the idea behind the book is that it's about children recognising that racism exists, it's recognising that there are differences in skin and differences in culture. But if we can start with self-love, self-esteem, self-work and value, we can get to a place where that kind of anti-racism kind of um kind of tool within us is already there so another Mm. that's not kind that's not kind for you to say that about their skin or that's not kind to not play with them because they look like that and you know children are so innocent and yet they are so open about how they feel if we can embed this in our children from such a young age that maybe in 20 and 30 years time they're not having to have the conversations you and I are having now let's hope so and I think that your work and your very um the things that you're doing now because you've left your your job as a as a assistant principal didn't you Aisha to to work full-time on representation matters but you'd you'd set it up a few years ago is it can you tell us a little bit about why you you set up so you know work on kind of different and anti-racist practice and inclusion isn't something new to me So I think often because of what's happened in 2020, many people think that the work kind of started then and really it started years and years and years before. And in fact, in my case, near on 10 years ago, and it actually started when I was volunteering with the Prince's Trust and I was working and doing some volunteer work in um, a number of young people prisons. They were um, for boys and there was a particular young man who I'd spoken to and I'd wish I could find him now, actually, when I think about how much of an impact he's had on my life. And it was a particular young man who was black and we had a conversation and he said, you know, perhaps if you were my teacher, I wouldn't be in prison today. 
And I didn't really get the premise of the conversation at the time, I'll be completely honest. It's only years later I realized the impact of what he said. But the point he was making was he expected me to like be a visitor and visiting someone else in, within the prison, not to see me in authority. And he was like, you know, all of the people who are employed are white, you know, the governors, the, you know, the officers, the, the people that he would engage with, you know, the court system, the police, they were all white. And so for him to see someone in some kind of authoritative position who looked like him or had a similar skin tone, that was odd for him. But it got me thinking about overrepresentation too. We see children, um, particularly if they're black, around media and sport, we see them overrepresented in our prison systems. You know, in the, the last set of stats I looked at, 52% of children uh, of color in prison, and then 37% of them were black. And I'm thinking, well, they don't make up that proportion of our population of young people. And yet those are the sort of figures we're looking at in terms of prisons. And so that really got me thinking about how important it is for us as adults, but for schools to understand that we need to make sure we, we see the importance of representation, that we understand that children need to see themselves in different roles. They need to see the different opportunities. They need to be aware that they're not limited and capped and that they really have an opportunity to bring their authentic self to self-actualize and be their best version. We talk about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of need. We talk about this idea that we just need, you know, food and shelter, but we also need to be seen. We need to be valued. We need to be humanized. And the reality is that to be in an environment where you're not seen or the very thing that you are or how you identify is not valued, you begin to kind of really lose your self-esteem, your confidence, your ability to show up. And so it's really important for me. And so representation matters really was birthed out of the idea that until society really allows everybody to be seen, they would always question, do they belong? And so I wanted to champion this idea of being seen, being included, but also being heard. Because you could be sat at the table and never speak, or you could speak and never really be heard. So this idea that I wanted to support schools, um, and particularly senior leadership teams, to question themselves hold the mirror up and really question how inclusive are you as an organization? Now, I often talk about race because that's my lens, but whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, whether it's even our conversations about disability, are you really being honest about your lenses? Because who we are as individuals will root us in our experience, but it will also impact on how we engage, it will impact on the lessons we produce, it will impact on our pedagogy, it will impact even on how we safeguard children very much because of what we've experienced and so I believe that it's important that staff are well equipped they are racially literate mm -hmm. and that they have the the opportunity to have discussion and that that's facilitated really by an expert who really understands how to pull people together in a safe and inclusive environment but at the same time allow people to understand how important it is that children have a better experience than the generations before. It sounds brilliant, and uh, you've been you've been really busy, haven't you? In schools, you were saying over the the last sort yeah, of yeah, it's been amazing. So I've been traveling up and down the country. I've been supporting universities. I've been working with schools both in the state and private sector. I've been to to Brighton just recently, London, Wolverhampton, as well as schools in Bristol. And what it means is that up and down the country, people are engaging in the conversation, and whether it is that they're trying to you know decolonize their curriculum whether it's about empowering their staff to feel more trained and equipped around their own racial literacy and understanding, whether it's even grappling with ideas of white privilege and, you know, critical race theory and understanding, you know, advantage structures in the system, people are having discussions. 
and they're beginning to be honest, they are much more aware and now they wanna know what to do. And so organizations like myself really wanna go out there and give people the tools and the skills and the knowledge that they need in order to make those changes. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the work that you've done, Aisha, you know, within? Yeah, of course, of course. So going out to work with different schools has been very different depending on what they need. And so mm-hmm. in some instances, it's kind of been that kind of initial inspirational kind of keynote, getting people to just be engaged with the subject matter. I always talk about the fact that we need to meet people where they're at. And so for some organizations, you know, you could be very much at the beginning of your journey. So having somebody kind of make it succinct and clear, but also giving you lived experience through the conversation really helps to get that going. So there's been elements of that. I've also been spending time training schools. So giving training sessions on EDI, training sessions on British values, looking at what is racial literacy, understanding what an anti-racist classroom can look like and providing those kind of bespoke bits of CPD that schools may require. But one of the most important things I've really enjoyed, which is helping school along their inclusion journey. So actually committing to a long-term contract with schools and it's really been about taking them through that journey. So allowing them to scope out who they are, audit their practice, work with them on surveying staff and students and actually helping them to allow their children and their staff to be embedded in the process so that it does become the golden thread within the school. You know, often I talk about what is the intent of your curriculum? What is the impact? And I want this work to be woven in. It's not to be an add-on. It's not an annual EDI session you do in September and you tick it off and you don't think about it. But it's also about helping schools to understand that this doesn't just take place in history. It doesn't just take place in PSHE, but actually we need that cross-pollination. We need that cross-curricular so that we all understand the impact that this work can have across every facet of school. But also it's about understanding your support staff too. So do we think about what happens in our reception? Do we think about what happens in our catering services, even our estate teams? Do we understand the impact of racial literacy for their job roles? Because we often focus quite narrowly on the curriculum, but it's more than that. And, um, you know, a school I'm working with in South Bristol, they were really bold. And one of the things they've done, particularly within their reception teams, they've improved their SIM system and made sure that every child's name is spelled phonetically. So there isn't those barriers about how do I pronounce your name, this othering, this idea that you need to have a westernized or Anglo-Saxon name. No, we're going to learn your name and we're going to do that by putting phonetical pronunciation. They've also allowed each of the children to talk about how they want to be racially identified. So actually, can I say black? Do I want to say person of color? Do I want to say global majority? How do I want to be racially identified? And similarly saying, you know, we're going to ask you what your pronouns are. And putting those things in place may not be things that are happening in your textbooks or in your classroom, but what they do is they provide this sense of belonging. Absolutely. Sense of um, value. And if you've are greeted from the moment you walk into a school building and somebody can pronounce your name right a name that you already think in your head somebody's going to get wrong it just makes you think like oh okay you know how to pronounce my name oh okay so this is a school that really wants to understand the value of different communities or you know making sure you're aware of different celebrations so when you know somebody walks into your school and it could be that you know they're celebrating Diwali oh you know how are your Diwali celebrations going oh you know it's Diwali Yeah, we value all celebrations within our school. And it's just allowing people the skills and the tools to not be tokenistic, but to truly understand who they're serving. But there's one thing we must remember, and I think it's important to note this. Even if your school is predominantly white, 
is not an excuse to not engage with the debate. Because what we are trying to do for our students is we want them to be global citizens. We want them to be aware of the world they will go into once they step out of your school building. I am meeting adults now who are meeting black people for the first time in their life at the age of 18, 19. I'm thinking, wow, what must that feel like? But what's important is what education did you have? Were you reliant on the media? Were you reliant on the TV, the film, the podcast you listened to? Because that might provide you with a very narrow view. But if in schools we can really educate, so we're no longer using you know, images of African children with flies flying out of their noses or you know, all African people living in mud huts. If we can get rid of some of those kind of negative stereotypes that perpetuate the ideology of what these people are like, it's like these people, like even that language, this separation, we want to truly make sure that everybody understands that we are inclusive. We name people for who they are and we truly integrate them. And there's no longer this them and us. We are a multicultural society and we need to value that culture. Absolutely. I'm totally in agreement with what, you've, with what you're saying. And you articulate it really, really well, Aisha. So what about the impact on well-being of the work that you've been doing, also in your own role as an assistant principal? It'd be really interesting to hear about that. It's really interesting. And I think I would do it in different lenses. Mm. When I think about children, and I'll always start with them because that's why I do what I do. Mm. When a child runs up to you and they say, Miss, you being here allows me to not have to go through the trauma of explaining the why you just get it and I want to get to a place where children don't have to pick and choose who they tell their story to now I get that children will always pick and choose because you might be favorite you have a teacher that you like but I don't want the reason to be because you're white and I'm black and so therefore I can't tell you what I've just been through because I don't think you'll believe me there's something about ensuring that children are seeing the impact because their staff are more equipped they're more aware, they're more inclusive, and that children feel that they can have this conversation with anybody, that they feel that they can challenge anybody, and they feel that they can be informative. And that confidence in children is something you can just witness. When children are able to just say how they feel, they're able to kind of express themselves, you see it manifest in their work, you see it in the way they walk, you see it in the things that they say. And they almost become their own kind of... Um, policing of each other's behavior they know how to call people out and how to call people in so children in themselves for me is a, is a really good way of testing the temperature of your impact because you'll see it in their work you'll see it in their attitudes if a staff there are a number of different measures so you've got your kind of your positive things like you know well how many complaints are you getting you know are staff complaining about how they're being treated or how they feel but there's also something about just the lived experiences and hearing the voices for whom it is real do you think it's still a tick box? Do you feel that actually you can raise your voice? Do you feel that you're still leaving parts of you at the door or do you feel you can bring your entire authentic self to your school building or to your classroom? Do you feel that your community value you? And those are the things that are more qualitative. Those are the things that you actually gain from talking and listening than you do by kind of counting numbers. But what we also get to see is you begin to see in the way schools naturally gravitate around topics and the way they have a confidence that they're going to do something irrespective of perhaps what they might hear from the government or they might hear through media. This is something that they want to do. And whilst it's not about naming particular schools, so I'll be mindful not to do that, but there's a particular school that I've spent some time in and I'm just looking at their social media and I'm, I'm seeing what's happening in their building and Black History Month, which some people don't agree with, but just looking at what their school did, you could feel it. It 
just looking at their social media, I, I saw the videos, I heard from the children, I saw the flags they put up, I saw, you know, the, the wealth of material and resource, it was well thought out, you could tell it wasn't something they thought about on the 1st of October, they had to have been planning this from like January, because they knew when this time arrived, they really wanted it to feel integrated, and it was every aspect of their school. And so it's about showing integration in life, being rather than it being a tokenistic element that you might see a little bit of it in history or a little bit of it in PSHE because it's topical, but instead it's something we can talk about all year round because we know the importance and the significance of it. Mm. And of course there's that spreading out then, isn't there, to parents and the wider community. Have you noticed any or heard about any particular examples yeah, of that? So again, um, one particular school I, um, I spent some time with did a whole concept. So I did a project called What's in a Name? And mm-hmm. the idea behind that project in itself was about allowing children to understand the importance of the of African diaspora and names and meanings. And we did this whole thing and this whole project so was really nice because whether you were black or white, whether you were British or African, you were all bringing together what your names meant but it made it expand. So then what they began to do is things like, um, not just what's in the name, but they did like what's in food, what's in clothes, but they also did one what's in community. And the community came together and they began to share then and exchange with each other the importance of what it meant to be a part of that community. And for the first time, people sharing things they've never shared before their experience to come into the UK, what it was to be an expat called for someone to be a migrant, sharing about their refugee status, talking about generational difference. And um, one of the think tanks, McKinsey, talks about the fact that the biggest gap at the moment isn't gender or ethnicity, it's generational. Yeah. And so it's really important to make sure that different generations also understand the involvement of race and racism, but also understanding what it means for them now. Because what my granddad would say would be very different to what my 10 year old son would say and it manifests itself differently so we have to understand that because the legacy of my granddad's generation is impacting what my 10 year old is experiencing but my 10 year old his generation is will be what will lead us in the future oh that's brilliant and it's been fascinating talking to you Aisha and really informative would you recommend any particular, so educate education staff, or any, any staff working in schools and settings, what would you recommend they, they do in terms of if they want to make changes in their, in their school? Three, three key things, I would say. Hmm. I think the first thing is, and I'm going to do it from the lens of race, but this could apply yeah. to the lens, but we're talking about race. I think the first thing is improving your racial literacy. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about reading, I'm talking about it in in the grandest and biggest way in which you could embody this kind of terminology, but it's your awareness. What do you know? Whether you're reading books, listening to podcasts, whether you're watching YouTube, it's about you really being aware of how literate are you? Do you understand terminology? Do you get its involvement? Do you see how it impacts you in your day-to-day life, your job? And there's something about you really auditing yourself, really being very honest and really reflective and saying, actually, what do I know and what do I still need to know? And being really honest about that. And that can be quite difficult because you're almost competing with your entire history. You're having almost an argument with yourself about all of your thinking, all of your knowledge, all of what you've learned today. And you're questioning yourself on that now. And you're almost saying, oh, I'm having to rethink everything I've been taught and really work out what still serves me well 
and what things need to change. So I would say that racial literacy element is really important. The second part of it is really that humanitarian element. And remember that we are talking about people. We're not talking about a textbook. This isn't a theory. This isn't an ideology. People are living and breathing this every day. So the second element of it is really having humanity in your work and in humanity in what you do. And when we think about racial trauma in particular, it's about actually what counseling is in place? What mental health support are we putting in place? What time are we taking to consider the labor of those who, for whom it's lived experience? And actually, what do we do about people who feel uncomfortable? How do we manage all of these conversations? And as I said to you, there was a dehumanization of African people, a dehumanization of black people. And sometimes we forget that. And it's almost like, oh, that was 400 years ago, 300 years ago, but we're still living the legacy of it today. That's why we have so many more black men who were stopped by the police. We have mm. so many more in mental health institutions. We have so many more black women dying in childbirth. The systemic system is alive and breathing. And so we have to understand what the system currently does, even if we don't want to be honest about it. And then the third element, which I think is really important, is your racial stamina and understanding that fatigue, this idea of being tired. And oh, are we having that conversation again? Mm. Oh, still talking about race. Oh, do we still have to do this? And the reality is, for however exhausted you are, for however tired you are, for however much you are bored and over the conversation, it never stops for the people who have the lived experience. They never get to switch off their blackness. They never get to switch off racism. They never get to switch off their, their negative interactions. I mean, I was on a train a couple of weeks ago coming back from Wolverhampton. Now, bearing in mind, we're talking about a full carriage that's full. People mm. sat on the floor, people sat in the corridor, and, and every seat is full except the seat next to me. Now, if nobody wants to sit next to me as a black woman on a train, that's your business. That's entirely up to you. But you must ask yourself this question. Why would you rather sit on the floor than sit next to a black woman on the train? I don't know. But these are all the elements that people need to consider. So when we talk about that racial trauma for me of knowing that even in 2021, when I'm doing the work that I do, I can still sit on a train that is packed and nobody wants to sit next to me. That is still my lived experience on a day-to-day -day basis. So when we talk about racial stamina and fatigue, we have to remember that for those for whom it's a lived experience, it never switches off. So even when you're at your, your most tired, and I get it, what's your st strategy? Who do you pass the baton to? How do you ensure that the work keeps going? Well, Aisha, I think that's you've summed up the conversation there really powerfully. I'm not going to add anything else, but thank you so much for your time today. And I, I know that this will be really well appreciated by staff who are working in in education settings and schools and um, I look forward to working with you and your brilliant brilliant career thank, thank you very much that. Aisha thank you and thank you for listening I really appreciate it thank you for listening to the education community podcast brought to you by Bernardo's we hope to see you again soon